as we've seen over and over again in this series and will continue to be seen, is the idea that Jesus has not come just to forgive us of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. Of course he's come for that, but that's just a small part of what he's come to do. He has come to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He's come to bring about a revolution of God in the social, political, uh, relational, all the different contexts that we live in. He's come to make all things new. All things new physically and emotionally and relationally and socially. Uh, There is a conspiracy afoot, as Dallas Willard put in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. And so the kingdom of God is coming in Jesus into the world, but how does it come? And how do you enter the kingdom and begin to experience its power? And the answer is, as we will see from this passage of scripture this morning, that the kingdom comes by hearing. The kingdom comes through a proclamation. It comes by hearing, and therefore, be careful how you hear. Now, that's what we're going to see this morning. And so turn with me, if you would, in your Bible, if you have it, or if not, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. A very familiar story of Jesus's from Matthew chapter 13, uh, called the parable of the sower. So let's read this together, okay? Beginning in verse 1, the same day. Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, and this is the first one, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them, and other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when... The sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then Jesus goes on to explain the parable later. And in between is the passage that Jonathan preached to us from last week. But here is the explanation, beginning in verse... 18, hear then the parable of the sower. Whenever anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is God's word. So Jesus is telling these parables, these stories, to teach us about the kingdom of God. And in this one in particular, he's showing us how the kingdom comes and how you can enter the kingdom and begin to experience the power of the kingdom in your life. And the answer is, again, just this. We're going to come back to this over and over again. The kingdom of God comes by hearing. And therefore, be careful how you hear. So, three things from this text this morning. The first is just, let's look for a minute at exactly how the kingdom does advance. How does the kingdom come? How does it advance? Secondly, let's look at the kinds of responses that will make you unfruitful in its advance. That will keep you outside of the power of the kingdom. Outside of experiencing all that Jesus desires to give you as the kingdom comes. But then third, 
After that, let's look very briefly at the kind of response that will make you fruitful. See, the issue is fruitfulness. Jesus wants us to be fruitful. And so we need to look at how the kingdom advances, the kinds of responses that will make you unfruitful in its advance, and then the response that will make you fruitful. Those are the three points in our outline, and we'll look at those together. Okay, so let's just begin with this. Then how does the kingdom advance? What do we learn about that from the story of Matthew? Now, the purpose of this parable is to temper expectations about the advance of the kingdom. You see, people in Jesus' day have been long awaiting the king that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. If you read in the Old Testament, you don't have to read very long before you see that what the Old Testament scriptures are promising is that there will be one, a king, a, a son of David, a royal son, a Messiah that would come, and through him he would conquer God's people's... The, the, the enemies of the people of God and would rescue God's people and he would make things right again. And the disciples and all the crowds are following Jesus and they believe him to be this king. They're following him because they believe, as we, you know, you've read in, even in this gospel, they believe he's the Messiah. They, they believe he's the one that has been foretold would come. And inevitably they're following him because they have certain expectations about what his ministry would affect. Some of them have come to him because they expect a quick fix to their problems. Some have expected war against the Romans. But in all cases, what most scholars agree to be true is that the people of this day were expecting an imminent advance of Jesus' kingdom. That he's here, he's finally here, and because he's here, so then very soon, he would be crowned king, and he would rule, not not only over Israel, but over the entire earth. And Jesus is telling this parable to correct their miscalculations about how everything's going to fall. He warns, doesn't he, that the advance of the kingdom would be slow. There would be mixed reactions. There would be a great deal of opposition and confusion and setbacks and defeats that some people would hear and obey and others would hear and reject. That's what the parable teaches. In fact, according to Jesus' math, if you notice there, in the parable, more people would reject the word of the kingdom than would accept it. There would be at times, in other words, more evidence of the kingdom's defeat than of its success. And if you look around at the world today, or if you look into your own life, and into the lives and the hearts of your children, and of your friends, and of your neighbors, you might be tempted to believe that indeed Jesus is losing. It appears as if his kingdom has failed. And the parable is meant to say, make no mistake, make no mistake. The seed is being sown. The kingdom is advancing, slowly, Invisibly, quietly, one heart at a time, maybe not in the Oval Office, or in the courtrooms, or in the legislative chambers, or the palaces and the places of power in the world, but make no mistake, it is advancing among the insignificant, forgotten pockets of people who have responded to the news of the King's coming with overwhelming joy and wholehearted obedience. It's coming. But you see, there's a second purpose for the parable. And that's not just to insist that the kingdom is advancing, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, but also to show the way the kingdom advances, the methodology of it. It isn't through force or political power. It isn't a hostile takeover. It's through gospel proclamation. Look at what Jesus does. Isn't this amazing? He tells a story about a sower, about a farmer, a gardener who goes into his garden and sows seed. And that's the metaphor he chooses to illustrate the way of the kingdom, the way of its advance. Now, of course, he is the sower who went out into the world, and his, his coming was with a simple message from Matthew 4, 
verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what he came to tell us. The kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is coming. The king is here. I'm the king. I'm here. I've come. And that's Matthew's gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the king. He's finally come into the world to do all that the Old Testament scriptures promised he would do. He has come to make heaven accessible to all who believe in him. Listen, not in some distant future, but now. We can enter into eternal life now through him. That's the message of the gospel. That Jesus has come to rescue us from sin and death, and if we repent and follow Him, if we turn away from all the other things we're looking to for life and turn to Him and listen to His words and obey, then we can begin to live eternal life, abundant life, not when we die and float up into the sky, but now. Right now. We can enter into eternity now. Because the King has come. See, this is what Jesus later calls the word of the kingdom in verse 19. It is just this, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' present and powerful reign, his victory over sin and death that can be ours as well, as well through faith, despite all the evidence to the contrary. The kingdom advances as the story of Jesus is told. Every time the scriptures are open and read around a dinner table, every time we gather and we teach our children in, in kids' worship classes. Every time we gather in corporate worship to sing and read and listen to the gospel being proclaimed, the kingdom is advancing in the world. Revelation 19 presents Jesus as a conquering king riding on a war horse, going out into the world to conquer the nations. And what we're told of him is that out of his mouth comes a sword. And of course, if you know the imagery and the metaphors of the Bible, the the imagery of the sword always refers to the word of God. And so he is the one who has gone out to conquer the nations, not with a sword in his hand to strike them down, but with a sword coming out of his mouth, the proclaimed, preached gospel of Jesus Christ that has slain the nations. And if that's what's happening in the world, if that is the way Jesus is advancing his kingdom, then... In our city, and among ourselves, then how do we respond? See, how will we respond? That's the issue. That's the question the parable asks us to answer. Will we hear the gospel, and repent, and believe, and obey, and enter into the kingdom, or will we fail to respond? You see, the kingdom comes by hearing. It comes through a proclamation, right? It's the, the sword coming out of his mouth. It comes through hearing And therefore, take heed how you hear. See, in this parable, Jesus describes four different responses to the word of the kingdom. Three that are ultimately wrong, and one that is the right response. And so, so let's kind of get into the meat of the parable now, okay? Three wrong responses. The bad soil hearers that we see here. And you'll see that I've given you three types. And the first is just this, the careful, the careful heart. The first, the first negative response is what I call the careful heart. Matthew thirteen nineteen, Jesus begins with the path, the hard, compacted soil that the seed can't penetrate. Okay? It, it just sits there, and the birds can come and snatch it away. Jesus is referring to the footpaths through the fields that became trails for people to walk through once, you know... Once every kind of thing was kind of laid out. It's similar if you've ever been like to North Carolina and gone on a hiking trail in the mountains. That there might be high grass on both sides, but 
where the people or the horses or the animals, you know, have traveled over and over again, there's this path that goes, you know, through, kind of through the brush and you can, you can follow it. At our house, uh, we're, we're a little obsessed about baseball in our house, okay? I admit it. I do. And so, um, we, we play so much baseball in the backyard, or we have typically as the kids of, the boys have kind of grown up, it's, we need a new backyard because it's too small now, but, we play so much that we have this home plate area in the backyard where we hit wiffle balls over the house. And if you hit it over the house, it's a home run, and that's kind of the deal. Uh, and so we do it all the time. We do it so much that no grass grows there. I mean, the ground is so trampled by all of the activity that it's just dirt. It's just dirt, and it looks ugly. So I finally bought a big piece of rubber, and I painted a home plate on it because I couldn't get the grass to grow Anyway, no matter what I did, and, and when I, and, and so you come to my house and you can see all the places in the yard where my kids play, because where the, the places where they typically play, where their feet kind of trample the ground, there's no grass there. Now Jesus says your heart can get like that. It can be like a path. There's so much activity, so much busyness, that when the word comes, it doesn't penetrate, it just sits there on the surface of the, of, of your life, sits there on the surface of your you see, the truth of the gospel comes, but just sits there for a moment. And then it's on to the next thing on the schedule. You know, no deep thinking. You sit here on Sundays and hear the scriptures read and sung and preached, and by the time you get to lunch, you've forgotten. You've moved on to the next thing. The word didn't put down roots into your heart. You've already moved past it, and you never come back to it and think out the implications or meditate on it. And Jesus says, this is the heart that hears, look at verse 19, but does not understand. And that word means something very specific. It doesn't mean, you know, I really, I just don't know what he's talking about up there. No, it, it means that you, you, that word means to put the pieces together, like in a puzzle, or to draw out the implications of something, or to think, to consider deeply, to meditate, until you come to a practical knowledge of something. So Jesus is describing a person who listens to the word of the kingdom and then goes on about their busy life and never slows down long enough to really think deeply to think out the implications of what they've learned and let it sink into their hearts. And he says it's a lost opportunity because then Satan comes and snatches it away. I mean, there's spiritual warfare going on. So Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous Baptist preacher in London at the, in the middle of the um, 19th century, preached a sermon on this parable. And of this particular kind of heart, he said the following, and I just want to read, quote him because you know he can say things better than I can. He says, the soil of your heart is so well beaten by continual traffic that there's no hope of the seed finding a lasting and living root hold. No, the road of your heart is such a crowded thoroughfare that there is no room for the sweet to spring up. And then, and then here's how he describes what all this busyness, all the soul traffic, what he calls soul, I love that, soul traffic. What all the soul traffic does. He says, there is such a thing as being gospel hardened. He says, it is possible to sit under sermons till your heart becomes dead and calloused. Now listen to how he describes this. Never startled. Never astonished. You come to church, but yet the tear does not trickle down your cheek. Your soul never seems to mount up to heaven on wings of praise, nor deep mourning over sin. Your heart is like iron. You see what he's saying? He's saying that all of the activity and the busyness will lead you to become unfeeling, that your pace of life, and this is in American culture in 2010, if I'm going to be your friend, I've got to warn you that the pace of life that most of you, most of us, 
in this room keep all of the running from one thing to the next, never stopping and slowing down and thinking deeply, what will happen is it will leave you at the end of the day completely unaffected. No tears, no real deep sorrow, no joy. And Spurgeon goes on to say that, um, that you can become so hard and so unaffected that, in his words he says, unless God himself shall be pleased to crack your heart in sunder with an earthquake or with a heartquake, there will never be room for the seed of heaven to lodge there. But I call this the careful heart. So why call it the careful heart? What do I mean, what do I mean by the careful heart? And I mean just this. I use that description because all of the traffic, all of the busyness, all that stuff is a life strategy for keeping a hard heart. It's a strategy for living a shallow existence. You know, not ever going below the surface, not ever really listening to the deep thoughts and desires and questions and fears and hurts and disappointments and concerns of the heart. You just stay busy, 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 busy. Never slowing down, never stopping long enough to consider and think out the implications of your life and apply the gospel to your heart. So I need to ask, is that you? And if it is, do you know the danger you're in? But there's a second type of bad soil here that Jesus describes, and it is represented by the rocky ground. And I call this, and it might be wrong in your... In your I change these things at the end of the week, but I call this the carefree heart. The carefree heart. Uh, this was a fairly typical scenario in the first century where some of the tilled ground would still contain rocks and stones and some seed would fall on the thin layer of soil that covered these rocks and stones. And what would happen is that the plant would spring up and for all practical purposes it would look very healthy, but the root system was compromised because there's not enough depth of soil for the roots to really grow. And so the first dry spell or the first heat wave or the first heart condition, the harsh conditions it faced, it would wither away. And Jesus says here's a second kind of response to the word of the kingdom that lots of people, he says, receive it with joy. Look there, verse 21. Then initially they're very enthusiastic, but eventually some kind of hardship or suffering comes and they lose their enthusiasm. They fall away, Jesus says. If you look closely at that word fall away there in verse 21, a better translation would be that that they stumble. They get their feet taken out from underneath them. Literally, literally the word is scandalon. They're scandalized by the trial. It becomes a hindrance to them. They can't get past it. And so there are a lot of people who come into the church and at first they're very excited. I mean, they may even make a decision to trust Christ for salvation, maybe even get into a leadership position, but eventually something happens and they just as quickly lose their enthusiasm. Their faith, was, which at one time was so strong and vibrant. So strong and vibrant. Begins to shrivel up and die. And as usual, the occasion for this change of heart is some kind of suffering, some tribulation or persecution, as Jesus says there in verse 21. And here's where you see what I mean when I call this the carefree heart. It's the person, the wrong response is the person who wants everything to be nice and safe and comfortable. And the moment there's any trouble and it gets hard, they're out, baby. You know? Immediately, you can see the point Jesus is trying to make. And this is so important, I think, to us as we just think about what it means to be faithful uh, to the vision and the mission that God has given to us. Jesus is teaching us that as the kingdom advances, what really counts, what produces fruit, what really counts is not a person's enthusiasm, it is their endurance. 
And that just came home, that so came home to my heart this week as I was thinking about these things. It's not enthusiasm, it's endurance. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6 that we should not grow weary in doing good. Don't stop. Don't give up, Paul says, because if you don't give up, you will reap a harvest in due season. You can't be fruitful without endurance. And if you've ever planted a garden, you know. You know it's a slow process. It's not as if you go out one afternoon and you plant the seed in the ground and then go to bed and you wake up the next morning and poof, there's the plant. No, that's not how it happens, right? It takes time. And that's true of anything. It's true of marriage, of parenting, of starting a business or trying to change a city. All of these things take years and years of consistent hard work. What Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. And we won't be fruitful. We will not be fruitful as parents. We will not be fruitful in our marriages. We will not be fruitful in our businesses. We will not be fruitful. We will not change the city of Winter Haven unless we endure for 10 or 25 or 50 years. We need endurance because fruitfulness equals endurance, not enthusiasm. And by the way, that's why it takes so long to join this church. Carter. We need to make it hard for you. Because what we're called to is hard. Right? I mean, and the thing we don't need is people who are very enthusiastic but aren't willing to endure. There are churches all over the city that are full of people like that. We need people who are enthusiastic and willing to endure. Will their enthusiasm endure? And so you see the way God makes you a person who can endure. And this is the the bad news, I guess. There's only one way God can create this and produce this in you. The one way, the only strategy God has for making you a person who can endure is by bringing suffering into your life and then bringing you through it. Romans 5.3 For we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's only one way to get character, and that's through suffering, which is why you can't aim at a carefree life. You better aim at suffering. Parents, you better aim your kids at suffering. While they're in your house, low-level suffering, while they're under your charge, so that you can teach them to get through it. It is in times of suffering where the gospel really begins to take root in your life. It's when you're in a hard time that the promises of Scripture really start to take hold of you at a deep level. They really start to sink down into the soil of your heart. And that's the problem with the seed sown in rocky soil. The root system can't develop. And so even though the plant looks healthy, there's no depth. It's superficial. So see, you can either see suffering is a good thing or a bad thing. And if you see it as a bad thing, Jesus says you won't be fruitful because you'll avoid it. And you won't grow in character. You may be carefree, but your life won't really count. There'll be little to no fruit. There's a great illustration of this in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. where Pil- If you've read the book, and if you haven't, you really should. It's one of those classics of Christian literature. But, but Christian is the main character, and he, has, he is on his way to the heavenly city, which is kind of a metaphor for heaven, and, and tra- journeying through this life towards heaven. And he meets with a man named Pliable, and Pliable begins to join him on his journey, and they begin to talk. 
And he, and Pliable asks Christian all these questions about what, what awaits them in the heavenly city, and he, and he tells him of streets of gold and of all of the joys and the wonders of heaven, and Pliable gets very excited about the promises of the gospel, and he loves the idea of there being an eternal kingdom that he can be a part of, and crowns of glory that will be given to all the citizens of that kingdom, and, and, and the way they say, garments that will make them shine like the sun. He, he's absolutely enamored with the idea that there will be no more crying or sorrow or pain there. It sounds like a good deal to him. And so Pliable commits to journeying with Christian until, until not very long, just right at the very beginning of their journeying together, they come to the Slough of Despond. And the Slough of Despond is a swamp where they fall into the mud and begin to sink and they can barely move. And it has become somewhat of a technical term in modern day psychology for deep depression. Bunyan, though, what Bunyan is doing is he's painting a picture of what adversity can do. Pliable and Christian get stuck to where they're so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief in this slew of despond that they can't even move, but eventually Pliable makes his way out. He, through, you know, he kind of gets himself out of there and he decides that if that is what it's like at the very beginning, then thanks, but no thanks, and he goes home. You see, Jesus is telling us that we should be slow in our spiritual evaluations because there are lots of people who start out really well and show lots of progress, may even become ministry leaders, but they don't finish, they don't endure. And fruitfulness comes through endurance, not enthusiasm. And that completely changes the way you look at suffering. You can start to see it as a gift, right? As your Heavenly Father is disciplining you and producing character in you. But if you aim at a carefree life, to aim, to aim <laughs> the way I put it, to aim to make your life a never-ending Corona commercial. <laughs> might sound really wonderful, but you'll be fruitless. Third type of bad soil here is that which is represented by the ground that is overrun with thorns that choke the plant and make it unfruitful. And I call this the careless heart, the careless heart. Now what happens if you plant a garden and don't weed it? Come to my house, and you can see. (laughs) The weeds will suck all the nutrients out of the soil so that there's nothing left for the plants, and they'll take over. Because weeds and thorns grow more naturally than vegetables and flowers. I've learned this. And if I go on vacation for two weeks and leave my little garden, I come back, and it's just about overgrown with weeds because the ground is cursed. And it's the same with our hearts. This is what Jesus is teaching us, that sin and vice are the native soil of our hearts. Spurgeon said it this way in that same sermon, grace is exotic, thorns are indigenous. Sin is so at home in the human heart. So don't do anything. Be passive instead of proactive. In the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, what little God is doing in you will quickly be overrun by the works of the flesh. You can't be careless. You can't be lazy spiritually. You have to fight. You have to weed out the sinful impulses and the idolatries that are planted in the deep places of your heart. You have to be thorough in your self-examination and discipline. You can't leave your heart untended and you've got to be proactive. You've got to make sure you're being watered and fertilized, that you're getting the nutrients that you need to grow. In other words, you have to cultivate your heart. If you don't, if you're careless, the thorns will come. And choke out the word and you will prove unfruitful, Jesus says in Matthew thirteen twenty two. Now Jesus warns us of a couple of things here, specifically that I need to show you. So if you go to that portion there uh, in verse 22, he names 
the thorns. And the first is just this, what he calls the cares of the world. This is exactly what Jesus is warning us about in Matthew 6, which is why I chose it for our assurance of pardon. It, uh, Jesus says there to seek first the kingdom of God and not be anxious about life, what we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear, if you remember. It is, and it is that anxious, that anxious concern. It's that anxious concern about the wor- you know, worldly things that Jesus says can come and begin to choke our commitment to him and to his kingdom and make us unfruitful. We worry. This is the way. So you ready? This is just from my, this is kind of my own life assessment here. We worry about the mortgage payment and the car payment and parents that are aging and, or grandparents that are aging and need to be cared for and the kids getting good grades so they can get into a good college and make a good living or how can they expel, excel at sports so they can get a scholarship and then if they don't get a scholarship, how am I going to pay and afford to send them to a good college? And so I worry about my savings account and the stock market fluctuations and then, of course, my job security. And so we obsess about our performance at work. We worry about our social standing and what others think of us and what we have to do to keep other people happy. (laughs) Man, no wonder we're exhausted. And that's just a small part of what Jesus means by the cares of the world. It's living. He means it's living as if this world, as if this age, as if this Reality in front of us is all their ears. Like what really matters is what kind of car you drive or what neighborhood you live in or the standard of living you maintain and not eternity and not people's souls and not the kingdom's advance. Jesus says if we're careless, if we don't take great care, this world and all of its cares is all we'll ever think about. All of our energy, all of our planning, all of our time will go into managing these cares and we'll have nothing left for his kingdom. But there's a second thorn and you see it there. Not only the cares of this world, but the deceitfulness of riches. And the reason Jesus adds this one, I think, is because this is how we try to manage the first. Right? Instead of taking our cares and our worries and our anxieties and in faith taking them to Him, we look to riches. We stockpile money because we think that enough money will provide us the security we're looking for. But Jesus says the whole thing's a delusion. That's what that word deceitfulness means. That money really, in the end, is powerless to save you. It's deceitful. It makes promises it can't deliver on. It makes you feel like you're safe when you're really not. It gives you the illusion of control, but it's not real, and that's why it's so dangerous. And worse, if you allow the love for the world and the desire for wealth and the accumulation of wealth to go unchecked in your heart, Jesus says very clearly it will render you unfruitful. It will drain you of all of your energy. You'll spend all of your time and energy trying to keep your money or get more of it. And so... You have to be constantly weeding through your heart to find where you're functionally trusting in something other than Jesus to save you. To find out where your heart is divided. This is a divided heart. And the way you do that is through the spiritual disciplines and practices, through Bible reading and meditation and prayer and journaling and self-reflection and living in community with other people and going to community group and getting in relationships with people who can help you and hold you accountable. That's why we do those things. Not so we can check them off the list. We need to do those things. So see, those are the three kinds of bad soil hearers. They're the three wrong responses to the news of the kingdom. But Jesus also describes a good soil hearer, the right response to the news of the kingdom. And and if you look there in verse 19, this is the one who hears and, as he says, understands. Now that's the same word as earlier. Uh, It means that the news about the kingdom, when, when, when he says, I think it's verse 23. Is that right? Let me get that right. Uh, verse 23. For what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word 
and understands. It's the same word in verse 19 of the one who hears and does not understand. And it means, in this case, that the kingdom, the news about the kingdom begins to penetrate into the heart. It moves beyond the theoretical and the emotional. The gospel, in this case, begins to move into your inner life and challenge your priorities and commitments and loyalties. And that's what differentiates a good soil heart from a bad soil heart. There's understanding. This person meditates on the word. They think out the implications and draw applications into everyday life. They don't just hear, they understand and they obey. The word comes into this person's life and finds good soil there and plants itself. So the question for us then, quite obviously, is how do you get good soil? How do you get good soil? Well, let me ask this. Whose job is it to dig out the rocks and pull out the thorns? It's not the job of the soil to do that, is it? (laughs) It's the gardener's job. And who is the gardener? None other than Jesus Christ himself. And so you see what we're being called, what we're being told to do here is to cry out to him in faith where you find your heart hard or where you find it full of rocks or where the thorns have just overrun your heart to take your heart to him, to submit yourself to him, to turn your heart over to him and let him begin to break through your hard hardness. Let him take the hoe of suffering, which is his greatest weapon, and break up the rocky places of your heart. Let him weed out your love for the world and the things of the world. Because you see, unless Jesus comes and does this, we will be, as Isaiah prophesied and Jonathan preached last week to us, we will be ever hearing but not understanding. And that's my greatest fear. But if Jesus comes to tend the soil of our hearts, then by the power of the Spirit, he will produce a harvest in us. See, that's the promise of these verses. Do you see the promise in that verse? That if we, if we turn to him and give our hearts over to him and allow him to come and work on us, then, then he will make us fruitful. We will understand and obey and he will make us fruitful. Some of us 30-fold and some 60 and some even 100-fold. And so the applications are just these. Uh, I have two, and then we're done. First, the first application is just a call to self-examination. See, the only point of the parable is to lead the hearer to consider where they are in the story. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to stop and think. So let's just do that. Let's stop and think. And let me just lead you in just a process of self-examination. Are you like the seed that fell on the path? I mean, where are you in this story? Are you like the seed that fell on the path? Are you busy, busy, busy? Constantly on the move, so busy that you never slow down long enough to think deeply. Is your heart hard and unfeeling? Or are you like the seed sown in rocky soil? Was there a time when you were really excited about Christianity? But, you know, over the time you've lost your enthusiasm. Did you grow up in church, but as you've grown into adulthood, you've just kind of left that religious stuff behind? Or are you like the seeds sown among thorns? Are you overwhelmed with the cares of this world so that there's little time and energy left for you to seek his kingdom? Where are you? Are you like the good seed bearing fruit? I mean, is there fruit in your life? As you think about your life, where do you fit in the story? But then secondly, just a second application, and that is a call not only to self-examination, but to heart cultivation. Richard Foster writes, a farmer... It's helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground. He plants the seed. He waters the plants. And then the natural forces of earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way with the spiritual disciplines, he says. 
They are a way of sowing to the Spirit. The disciplines are God's way of getting us into the ground. They put us where he can work within us and transform us. By themselves, the disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. You see, the way your heart becomes fertile soil is through spiritual practices. Because it's through the practices that we've already said, like Bible reading and memorization and prayer and community groups, etc., that the Word can begin to penetrate your heart. That's why we do those things. Not because we want to be legalistic about them and they make us feel good about ourselves because we're good Christian people. No, it's the only way the Word can come and plan itself in our lives and penetrate our hearts. The kingdom of God comes by hearing. So be careful to hear. Be careful how you hear. Don't leave here this morning and move on to the next thing. Stop. Slow down. Take time to think. Pursue God in the spiritual disciplines. Fine. Join a community group. Find some people who will walk beside you and open your heart up to them and ask them to pray for you because that, see, that's the way you become fruitful. And so let's pray that he would do that in us, okay? Lord Jesus, come and take our hearts, some of them like the path, just compacted and hard and calloused, some of them like the rocky soil. We have an appearance of spiritual life and health, but really our root system has just been ravished by hardship and suffering, and some of us just overrun with thorns. Come and wherever you find us, take our hearts. And for the one who is hard, I pray you would break through. And for the one who is like rocky soil, I pray, I do, it's dangerous to pray, but I pray you would take the hoe of suffering and just begin to to rip up the hard places and tear apart the rocks. And for those who are, who are just entwined with thorns and weeds, I pray that you would rip the weeds out, as painful as it might feel. That you might make us fertile soil. Uh, that we might bear much fruit, because that's our prayer. That's what we desire more than anything else, is to be people who bear fruit for your glory. So Lord Jesus, we ask that you come and do that, and we thank you that you are the one, you are the keeper of hearts. Uh, You are the one who knows us intimately and loves us truly. And we just rejoice in the news of the kingdom. That you have come not only to save us from our sins, but to make all things new. As that news, as that, not instruction, as that news comes of all that you have done to save us, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We really don't like silence in the church, but I'm going to just ask that we take as just a time of response, that we just take 30 seconds and bow your head and really, really try to just put yourself in the story and really think out uh, the implications and try to find, just do some self-examination for just a minute. Let's just take a moment to be silent. I usually have that song to think about what I'm going to say in the benediction, so I sang it instead. So I'll just offer the benediction. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then here is the promise uh, that Jesus has won for you through his dying the death that you should have died and living the life that you should have lived, that you can live beneath the Father's smile. And that no matter, what, no matter whether you live with a hard heart, a, you know, a stony heart, a thorny heart, that Jesus will take your heart in his hands and he will heal you. And he can take your heart and make it fertile soil for the gospel. And so receive the promise of that benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.